Welcome to of theistic evolution. I usually do one chapter, one video, and in this case, I had to divide it into two. One chapter, one video, and in this case, I had to divide it into two because we just took too long going over the Keller clips on this particular subject. So if you want to see part one first, I would suggest doing that. Uh, some of what we talk about will build on understandings previously gleaned in that particular video or audio as the case may be. So go check that out. We're going to continue uh, with our critique though. And really though, it's going to be more so the critique that comes from our author in engaging with Keller. Now this book is written by a number of different authors. In this particular chapter though, it's William M. Schweitzer who critiques Keller's view of Darwin Darwinian evolution or really theistic evolution, a way to try to bridge the gap between Darwinian evolution and biblical creation. And the title of the chapter is not quite theistic evolution. Does Tim Keller bridge the gap between creation and evolution? Now this was written in 2014. So there are things that have come out since then. And some of those that I played for you in the last episode on this particular subject. And I've gone online, I've tried to find other places where Keller talks about this subject. And I think I have a decent handle on what he believes now. And it doesn't, hasn't really changed since the time that these critiques were being made, but he has repeated himself, I would say. And, uh, and so this is very relevant. It's very current. I don't think there's anything outdated about this. Keller hasn't changed his views on any of this. And so we're going to start uh, here. We're going to start with the dilemma that Keller is addressing. And I'm going to make myself disappear for those who are watching, or I'll put myself up here so you can, you can see what I'm actually uh, reading from. This is a quote from a article that Keller wrote in 2009 on BioLogos. BioLogos, for those who don't know, is a website. Well, it's an organization. It's bigger than a website. Keller actually has uh, done a number of things with BioLogos. He is an author there. He's done a podcast. The last one he does did was with uh, the founder of BioLogos, which is Stephen Collins, and, or Francis Collins, sorry. And uh, of course, Francis Collins of the fame from the National Institute of Health. And so Keller is uh, involved with BioLogos to some extent. He's written a few articles. He's done some podcasts. BioLogos is, according to them, uh, an organization that believes that God created the universe, the earth, and all life over billions of years. God continues to sustain the existence and functioning of the natural world and the cosmos continues to declare the glory of God. We believe, it says, that the diversity and interrelation of all life on earth are best explained by the God-ordained process of evolution with common descent. Thus, evolution is not in opposition to God, but a means by which God providentially achieves his purposes. Therefore, we reject ideologies that claim that evolution is a purposeless process or that evolution replaces God. So they are very clear about believing in, in this case, it's Darwinian evolution, and also believing in uh, what they would consider to be biblical orthodoxy. Now, there's people online who have done all kinds of work showing that there's tons of contributors and statements made by Biologos fellows or people associated with Biologos that are not orthodox at all. I'm not here to bring you all of that just to show you that this is an organization that Tim Keller is somewhat affiliated with, and uh, it's not all above board. Here's one quote, and this is a quote that um, our author here, William Schweitzer, uh, who critiques Keller, brings up in this book, Engaging with Keller. And it's from 2010. It's Bruce, Bruce Waltke. He says this, 
If the data is overwhelmingly in favor of evolution, to deny that reality would make us a cult, some odd group that is not really interacting with the world, and rightly so, because we are not using our gifts and trusting God's providence that brought us to this point of our awareness. So the Biologus had no problem publishing, in 2010 at least, Bruce Waltke saying that basically if you uh, deny evolution, I mean, we're, you're a cult. I mean, that's pretty steep charge, right? So th that gives you a little bit of a sample of, of kind of where they're at. And, and this is where Tim Keller uh, has written this quote that I'm about to read for you. Many secular and many evangelical voices agree on one truism, that if you are an orthodox Christian with a high view of the authority of the Bible, you cannot believe in evolution in any form at all. New atheist authors such as Richard Dawkins and creationist writers such as Ken Ham seem to have arrived at a consensus on this, and so more and more in general population are treating it as given. If you believe in God, you can't believe in evolution. If you believe in evolution, you can't believe in God. This creates a problem for both doubters and believers. Many believers in Western culture see the medical and technological advances achieved through the science and are grateful for them. They have a very positive view of science. How then can they reconcile what science seems to tell them about evolution and their traditional theological beliefs? Seekers and inquirers about Christianity can be even more perplexed. They may be drawn to many things about the Christian faith, but they say, I don't see how I can believe the Bible if that means I have to reject science. Now, the reason I read this all to you is to reiterate something I said I suspected in the last video, but you're seeing more clearly actually spelled out by Tim Keller here. And that is that the problem that he sets out to try to rectify is that people see this, especially in New York, but people in the world see this belief in creationism as such a barrier. It's off-putting. They don't want to believe that. They don't think it's true. They've been taught their whole life it isn't. And if they have to become creationists in order to become Christians, or if that's just part of the package, well, they'll just reject it. And so how do we get around this? Well, we have to form some kind of a middle path here between Ken Ham and Richard Dawkins. We have to show that, well, you can be a Christian and a faithful Christian, and you can reject creationism. And I think this drives Keller's whole view of this because he's not starting out with the view that we need to go to the Bible and look for the truth there and whatever it says, we need to just hold to it because that's what the Bible teaches and that's what Christians believe. He, instead, he wants to uh, start off with what's, what, what do non-Christians, especially secular progressives in New York City, have against Christianity and, oh, creationism is one of them. And how do we make the Christianity more palatable? Well, we can excise the creationism. We can take a scalpel and root it out. And that's how we're going to make it more palatable and winsome and um, just compelling. So he says this, uh, this is his position from the same essay. There are a variety of ways in which God could have brought about the creation of life forms and human life using evolutionary processes. And that the picture of incompatibility between Orthodox faith and evolutionary bi biology is greatly overdrawn. And so this is the middle way he wants to forge. There are ways, there's multiple ways um, that we can navigate this. And we can show that there is compatibility between Orthodox faith and evolutionary biology, actually. That uh, the, the people who think that there is incompatibility there, they're just mistaken. And, and so that's his goal. And that's his position. And there's three problems that uh, engaging with Keller seems to suggest about this. Schweitzer says that Keller's framing of the problem is misplaced. He seems to think that the great problem in urgent, is, in urgent need of solution is the difficulty people experience when they have to go against the proclamation of prestigious authorities. And that's, that's true. That's, 
that's what I encountered in college. That's what I think people in academia are particularly clued into that uh, they're concerned that there's all these smart people who are saying evolution's true. And man, you're going to be an ignorant dum-dum if you say it's not. I mean, this is, uh, if you read the 1994 book, I think it's called Scandal of the Evangelical Mind uh, by, oh, who, who wrote that book? Now I'm, it's, I'm blanking on it. I need to look it up here. Scandal of, of the Evangelical Mind. Uh, it's by Mark Knoll. Yeah, I figured. Okay, Mark Knoll. Um, I mean, that's the kind of view you get there. So, I mean, these these hick creationists out there, these evangelicals who make us look bad and uh, look what they're doing. They, they believe that uh, God created everything. Can you believe that? We believe we came from a rock 4.6 billion years ago and from the... Uh, the you know as one uh, one person said from the goo to the zoo to you that's of course more intelligent people that's what they believe and so that's what we need to hold to and so the the, the problem is that keller starts out his framing with this and in keller's framing of the problem the only possible solution is some form of accommodation so he's saying that's the first problem with keller he's trying to accommodate that's how he starts off this whole discussion and it's true number two keller notices that there is a big difference between the objective findings of biology and a grand theory of everything which is an unwarranted extrapolation from them the very same line of reasoning would also show why we need not capitulate when confronted with the darwinian theory of origins and so this argument is is, is like this Keller makes a distinction between, he phrased it in the last video we did, macroevolution versus microevolution. But here in the article from Biologus, he basically says, well, you have evolution and as a biological process, and then you have evolution as a worldview. And Christians shouldn't accept it as a worldview, as an explainer for everything, but they, they, can, ex they can accept it as a biological process. And Schweitzer basically says no, because that in itself is an argument against it. If, if, Darwinian evolution can function. It is actually very similar to the critical race theory stuff. The people who say, well, it can be an analytical tool, can't it? Uh, you can just use aspects of it, but you don't have to accept it as a worldview. This is, uh, this is the, th the thing that Neil Shenvey, as I remember, when he came out with his article in the Gospel Coalition a few years ago, which I think has served as a template for how to navigate this particular issue from people who uh, want to still um, give critical theory some kind of a semblance of... Uh, authenticity and while rejecting it as a worldview or standing against it or saying they're not critical theorists they forge this middle path that sounds an awful lot like this the way keller's navigating evolution they'll say well on the one hand you have some things that critical theory or that evolutionary the uh, bio i said theology biology teaches that are uh very they seem very true and very compelling and uh we seem to they, they seem reasonable and we can accept those things. But yet at the same time, we can just say that we don't want to go too far. We don't want to uh, have an overarching interpretive framework that takes into account every facet of human existence. That's for Christianity, that we relegate that to the realm of religion. Well, it sounds good. The problem is, in the case of critical theory, as we've uh, gone over many times, uh, it is a whole set of assumptions that leads inevitably to a anti-Christian worldview. There's no question about it. That's what it is. By nature, that's what it is. And it exists in the minds, it first existed in the minds of uh, sociologists and other academics who were playing out the, their own uh, fanciful assumptions 
and then foisting that onto or overlaying that onto reality. It's, it's not a lot different than the Pythagorean theorem or laws of mathematics that are part and parcel to the natural world we live in. That's not what you get with critical theory. And it's also not what you get with Darwinian evolution. There's a whole bunch of assumptions that are very actually theological in nature and very philosophical that you start off with before you get to the supposed observable or testable or um, the you know repeatable scientific or uh, no things that you can notice with studies you you have to make a whole set of assumptions before you even get to that point uh, i mean with critical theory you have to assume racism exists you have to assume there's this thing called white privilege you have to assume um that uh, you know history has been shaped and our whole understanding of reality has been shaped by whiteness and you know all, all these kinds of things we've talked about. For Darwinian evolution, you have to start off with the assumption that there isn't a creator who, uh, and this is where it gets into conflict with theistic evolution, that there, there isn't a creator who, with intentionality, who uh, put evolution or, or placed evolution in motion, that instead there's a process of natural selection, which in and of itself came about through uh, random mutations and blind chance uh, that got us to where we are. And it can't really render a morality or a system of ethics. It's, uh, in fact, it's incompatible with that. It's just what is, is. Uh, there isn't an ought from it. You have to start off with these assumptions about the very nature of reality, that that's how we get ahead, that that's how advances are made in science uh, or in, in progress, supposedly, towards which progress would mean, uh, I guess, more, um, more our species you know, developing into higher beings. I mean, that in and of itself is kind of a spiritual, quasi-spiritual assumption. That doesn't come from biology necessarily. Uh, so you have quasi-religions uh, at the basis of both of these understandings. And uh, it, it's obvious it's evolu Darwinian evolution from the beginning was an alternative to Christianity. And that's how it's been used. It's been used as a wedge in that way. And some Christians like Tim Keller have tried to see it as something to get around. To It's an inconvenient thing to try to uh, either reconcile or... Uh, try to uh, stave off objections that are stemmed from it by showing that the Bible is compatible somehow. Uh, so anyway, that's the distinction Keller makes. And, and that very distinction is, like, like I said, the same thing that cr people who think that there might be a place for critical theory or there might be a place for an intersectionality somewhere, it's the same argument that they make. But the problem is, if it really is a grand theory of everything, evolution and critical theory too, if they really are explainers for all, that's how people really do use them. And that's how the people who developed them really did see them. And that's um, and, and there's whole departments now in universities based upon this. And it's basically functioning like a religion for people. Then that's a really good argument not to use it as a biological uh a uh, template or a, a uh, or to just accept you know certain aspects of it it'd be like trying to accept certain aspects of islam by saying well as long as it's not a worldview that explains everything you can uh, you know bow to mecca when you pray just accept that one part of it uh, you you have to be super careful with these kinds of things and i think the author makes a valid point here is that if that's what evolution is then why did you do you want anything to do with any of it if that's what it is now if that's not what it is then we could have a discussion about it but Keller is on the one hand saying that's what it is. And that's also, it doesn't have to be that way. It can also be this. 
Which is it? All right, the third thing is Keller suggests that we can affirm both the reality of evolution and also the biblical teaching of God's creation. So it's a synthesis here. It's syncretism to some extent. Keller um, equivocates on science, and this is a trick that I want you all to just see because you'll hear it in other places. If biological evolution is true, Keller writes, does that mean that we are just animals driven by our genes and everything about us can be explained by natural selection? The answer is no. Belief in evolution as a biological process is not the same as belief in evolution as a worldview. We just talked about that. So he brings up, there's a biological process, evolution. There's a worldview, evolution. But then he says, many believers in Western culture see the medical and technological advances achieved through science and are grateful for them. They have a very positive view of science. How then can they reconcile what science seems to tell them about evolution with their traditional theological beliefs? Well, is Christianity pro or anti-science? Well, of course, the foundation of science came from uh, the very nature of, of the belief that there's order to the universe came from people who believed in Christianity, at least in basic theism of some kind, that there's a God who is upholding nature and that we, that we should expect order in nature because there's an orderly God. And without that, you don't have science. So of course, Christians uh, believe in science, but if science does give us a belief in evolution, which Tim Keller seems to suggest here, and if that's, if that's truly scientific, it's observable, testable, repeatable. That's my understanding of science. It's something that um, we've been able to ascertain is actually true from the scientific method. Then Christians would be compelled to accept it, would they not? Because if that's what our observations are telling us, and we believe that our observations are based upon a God who has fine-tuned us in such a way that we can trust our senses, we can trust the instruments we've created that our senses then can also um, look at and, and verify to be true. Uh, should we not th then accept evolution if that's part and parcel to what science is? The problem here is that Tim Keller is playing loose with a lot of terms, worldview, biological process, science. What is evolution? Is it science? Is it a biological process? It is, a, is it a worldview? Which, what is it? If it's, a, if it's science, then we got a problem. If it's not science, then and it's just a worldview, it's a competing religion, then we don't. We uh, need to get out there and compete with this religion. We need to show that Christianity is true and this religion is false. Uh, but if it's a biological process that's observable, testable, repeatable, and I'm talking about macroevolution here, going from one kind, biblical kind to another kind, uh, in a progression like from apes, let's say primates to, to human beings, then um, if, if that's something that's scientific, then we have a problem. And T Keller doesn't really ever answer this. He just kind of throws it out there. And he makes the mistake of really making the consensus of scientists the same as science. And they're not the same. Just because a bunch of scientists get together and say something's true doesn't mean that it is. And there's, there's numerous examples from history on this. Uh, luminiferous uh, ether theory, that light has to travel through this ether substance. Uh, that's rejected now. Uh, the miasma theory, the phlogiston theory, the spontaneous generation theory. There's all these theories that scientists used to believe in that they don't believe in anymore. Uh, they don't think, you know, people don't believe that if you just leave some uh, food out that it means that gnats or bugs or living organisms are just going to spontaneously generate from uh, the soiled, you know, food. Uh, we know now that there's there's spores that uh, create, uh, you know, mold, and there's um, uh, eggs that are laid by 
plant or by plants by by flies there's there has to be something else coming in it's not just biological material it spontaneously generates so uh just because a bunch of scientists say something doesn't mean that that's what the science says they could be wrong science must take into account the possibility if true science that all evidence of environmental ad adaptation which has not actually resulted in a new life form is just suspect because it might likewise prove only to be a reversible phenomenon belonging to a stable kind the example here that's given by Schweitzer in the book is the finches on the Galapagos Islands. The story is that Charles Darwin, of course, went and visited the Galapagos Islands and he saw all these finches with different sized beaks and he thought, that's interesting. It, natural selection seems to uh, favor the finches with certain sized beaks over others. And uh, that means that in you know another million years or so that you're going to get different that the the finches with I, I don't remember if it was smaller or larger we'll say smaller beaks are going to die off and that's how evolution uh, progresses and makes finches that are more suitable for the environment. Well, the problem is that on those very islands in the 70s there was a drought, and guess what? The finches with bigger beaks tended to do better, but when it's very wet, the finches with smaller beaks tend to do better. Wouldn't you know? There's a range that the finches, uh, a biological range they have where they can get smaller or larger beaks, but they cannot become another species altogether, or another, I should say, kind, use the biblical language, altogether. And that's the problem with evolution, Darwinian evolution, is it says you would have to believe that these finches would turn into something completely different based upon natural processes that Darwin did not live long enough to observe himself. He made assumptions. And so if we're truly going to be scientific with the observations that we've been able to make since man has been around recording things, we would have to assume that it's possible that the evidence of environmental adaptation could be just like those finches, that it's not resulting in new life forms, that it, it actually might even be reversible depending on the environment changing. And so that would be incompatible with Darwinian evolution. And that would be consistent though with science. And that's what uh, Schweitzer's trying to say about Keller. He's like, Keller plays fast and loose here and, and equivocates on science. And it gives you, it leaves you with the impression that the science is supporting this biological process of evolution. And it, it doesn't. Um, Keller has ambiguity on man's creation as well. Now he's been more clear. I, I showed you a video where he was a little tentative, but he was at least saying that he believed that man was created from the dust of the ground. But here's what he says in this article from Biologos. He says, however, there are many who question the premise that science and faith are irreconcilable. Many believe that a high view of the Bible does not demand belief in just one account of origins. They argue that we do not have to choose between an anti-science religion or an anti-religion science. They think that there are a variety of ways in which God could have brought about the creation of life forms and human life using evolutionary processes and that the picture of incompatibility between orthodox faith and evolutionary biology is greatly overdrawn. Now we've read this quote before in this video, but I wanna focus on that one part, the creation of life forms and human life using evolutionary processes. Hmm, so human life using evolutionary processes? Human life too? Not from the dust of the ground, but by evolutionary processes, that's, that's uh, possible, that's orthodox, you could have that. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being, Genesis 2.7. Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law was 
Uh, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not the transgression, is not like the transgression. For if the transgression of one, the many died, by the transgression of one, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. This is Pauline theology. This is biblical theology. This is the assumption that Christians have held for 2,000 years that man was created from the dust of the ground and that death came through sin. When man sinned, that's when we had a curse. That's when we had death. And that Christ is the second Adam who came about, not through an evolutionary process, mind you, uh, through a miracle. And he is the one to roll back the curse. And Evolution, though, an evolutionary process that creates human life would mean that there's death before sin. And it also means that man wasn't created from the dust of the ground, uh, but through a, uh, and God directly breathing into the nostrils, uh, the breath of life, but through millions of years of changes. Tim Keller also denies a worldwide flood. He says, I believe Noah's flood happened, but that it was a regional flood, not a worldwide flood. He says, after Genesis 1, the rest of Genesis reads like historical narrative. And so uh, he's, we've talked about this in the last video, the difference between Genesis 1 and 2. So we're not going to go through that again. But I will say that on the issue of Noah's flood, there is a lot of biblical support for this. Second uh, Peter 2, 3 through 7 says, Know that first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when the, they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, if you want to say it's a regional flood, then why not say that the fire that's coming to judge the earth is also regional? Uh, second, a plain reading does not give you that it's a regional flood. That it, it seems to be very clear here that the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. It's funny that that's the very mocking, the very thing that Peter says is going to come and is going to, uh, people are going to believe that they're going to forget this flood stuff that God judged the earth. It, it seems to me like Keller's running in that circle a bit here, that he's purposely suppressing this and saying, oh, it's just a regional flood. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made, Genesis 7. Also in Genesis 7, it says this, Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated to the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Huh, all the high mountains. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and, and all mankind of all that was on the dry land in uh, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things into birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. I'm sorry, that is not regional. 
that is that that is over the whole face of the earth every living thing um this is clear in scripture and yet keller denies this and this is from you can i put the links here for those who are patrons if you want to go in the info section and download the link you can go ahead and do that uh, and it'll provide you here but or you could just type this in if you're watching i guess and you can see this is a, a 2006 um, guide, a study guide that Keller made on, uh, it's called, What Were We Put in the World to Do? And this is where he talks about he doesn't believe in a worldwide flood. Now, what is the implication? What's the problem with all this? The effect of Tim Keller's approach on pastors and churches is this. He says this in his essay, Creation, Evolution, and Christian Lay People. He says, we are to be a bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of the street and the pew. Let me read that again. We are to be a bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of the street and the pew. It's interesting. And this is, I think, how a lot of people today view being what, what being a pastor is. They think that, and a lot of people I went to seminary with, think that pastors are these uh, great, high-minded intellectuals who are there to do just this. And they give TED Talks. They don't give sermons anymore. They give TED Talks. They even call them exegetical, which is weird to me. But you know, they go through passage, and then they bring in all these philosophers. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do all that. There's times to bring in outside sources. I'm not saying not to do that, uh, especially for application. But um, there is an emphasis, and you see it in Tim Keller's sermons, of uh, shifting the authority from the scripture to these other things, these other uh, therapeutic uh, uh, ideas. And we, we've seen this already in our series when we talk about things like the Trinity or like uh, the doctrine of uh, hell. We see that there's more credibility given to thinkers like C.S. Lewis, it seems like, in his view of these things than there is to God's word. And it's because I think Keller has this view of what a pastor is, that you you are this bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of the street and pew. And it gives you a sense of respectability and pastors have lost a lot of respectability. So it's attractive to a pastor. And if they can sound super smart. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's also attractive sometimes to laymen who they want to feel like they've just listened to something super smart and they leave the building thinking, wow, I just listened to something super smart. My pastor's super smart. I feel super smart. And, uh, and, it, and it touched me too, uh, in, in a way, and it, it was palatable. And it, I mean, it, it also allows you to do some ear tickling there because you can uh, say all kinds of things and avoid things in scripture that are inconvenient. And um, this is, I think, one of the hallmarks of Tim Keller is being this bridge. Now, in this context, it's being a bridge between Darwinian evolutionists and what the Bible teaches. And he says, I'm aware of what a burden this is. I don't know that there has ever been a culture in which the job of the pastor has been more challenging. Nevertheless, I believe this is, and listen to this, this is our calling. This is our calling. So our calling as a pastor is to be a bridge between the world of scholarship and the world of the street. I, and in the pew, and I would suggest that if you read scripture and you look at what being a pastor is, you're not going to find this. You show me the Bible verse that says this. You won't find it. Being a pastor is, well, there's a lot of things that being a pastor is, but it's not this. 
It is being keeping watch over the souls of your congregation, the sheep that God has entrusted to you as a shepherd. Um, it is being ready to refute those who contradict. So in that sense, that's the closest you can come perhaps to trying to make this fit and does it still doesn't fit, but being, you need to at least understand the challenges. And so in this context, it would be, hey, Darwinian evolution is a challenge. Let's refute it. That's what being a pastor would look like in this case, not being a bridge, but refuting it. Uh, being a pastor means that you are, you meet the qualifications in scripture for what being a pastor is. You're hospitable. Your family's in order, you're um, able to teach, and, and that's your main job really is to teach uh, and to make disciples and to train people how to do so. And it's all the things scripture says about being a pastor, not what Tim Keller's saying here. And I think that is the temptation. And that's why there are pastors in following in Keller's wake who've gotten hung up on this. And it's not just this issue, it's the issue of critical theory. Keller takes a very similar approach on that. Uh, and this book was written in 2014. And so, um, it doesn't, it doesn't go into that stuff, but I've done so in other videos. And I think if it was written today, you would find a chapter probably on Tim Keller's view of critical theory, because it could be written in very similar ways to his chapter on Darwinian evolution. So that's the danger, uh, is to change the calling of the pastor. It's to change the nature of scripture itself and how we approach it and its authority in our lives. Uh, if we believe that scripture is not telling the truth when it comes to a worldwide flood, uh, then why should we believe it's telling the truth when it comes to the Ten Commandments or the nation of Israel or Jesus and his coming or uh, Paul's writings or any of it really? Uh, when, if we can't believe the scripture on that, then we can't believe the scripture on other things as well. And it just opens the doors to as long as there's someone who is a scholar who pretends to be smart about these things, or maybe is smart, but is suppressing the truth, then we have to listen to them and we're, we become slaves to that. And we need to be free. We need to be just uh, able to use, to, to approach the scripture as our final authority using tradition and the very helpful things that people have said over the years in our Christian tradition about the scripture, but not viewing those things as the final authority and not being uh, a slave to what other people have said about scripture or what other people think scripture means. We need to be, uh, as Paul said to the Bereans, being able to test the, the scripture to see if these things are true. And that means uh, even being critical of an apostle was in bounds. So that's my uh, shtick for you on this whole um, issue of Tim Keller and the uh, Darwinian evolution. And, and he doesn't go as far as some. He opens the door, though. And I think it is dangerous uh, for that reason. Well, God bless. More coming later this week. I have a lot of interviews this week. You could pray for me. Uh, interviews that I'm doing for other people and other platforms and also some interviews that we're going to be showing on this particular platform and I still have some things uh, I wanted to take care of last year but I couldn't because of sickness and because of uh, family visiting and just um, and I had a, a nice warm spell actually the last few days and so I was able to get some things outside done that I didn't think I was going to be able to get done but uh, but I'm focused more now and uh, have some things to share with you and some good things coming up so uh, God bless more coming by now